Socialists. We're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the, the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host, Ron Baker, and on today's show, Ron, we are privileged to be interviewing Dr. Mary J. Ruert. Uh, can't wait. This, loved her book. Yes, and, and Ron, I... I don't know if you had the opportunity to meet Mary at all a little bit. I know at the Texas convention in 2016 when we did the radio show from from the convention floor, uh, I know you met a lot of people, but I don't know if Mary was in. But the, the following day, I think it was after you left, I, I had uh, some MC duties that I had to take care of. And I had the privilege of introducing uh, Mary and, and, and doing a panel with her. With some, uh, uh, I think it was a group of women, were women in libertarianism. I think was the the subject of the panel, and I, and I I, I want to reprise a little bit of that introduction in that it's not often, Ron, that you get a chance to introduce one of your heroes. Agreed. <laughs> right. So um, really, so honored today to to bring Dr. Mary J. Ruert onto the show. She is a, a research scientist, ethicist. Libertarian author and activist, received her Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry and her PhD in Biophysics in the early 70s, both from Michigan State University. After a brief assistant professorship, she accepted a position with the Upjohn Company in 1976, and we'll be talking more about that. That's the part of the, the backstory here, where she was a senior research scientist and involved in developing new th therapies for a variety of diseases, including liver cirrhosis and AIDS. She left Upjohn in 1995 to devote her time to consulting and writing, and her award-winning international best-selling book, Healing Our World, which is fantastic, by the way. If you haven't had a chance to read that one yet, Ron, put it put that one back on your reading list. Okay. Demonstrates how how ethical application of libertarian principles has historically created harmony and abundance. She currently serves as the chair of Liberty International, the secretary of the Foundation for a Free Society, and she's been an at-large member of the Libertarian National Committee as well as serving on the board of Heartland the Heartland Institute. She came within a, a hair's whisker of being the nominee for president of the Libertarian Party at one point. But today, we're going to focus on her new book called Death by Regulation, How We Were Robbed of the Golden Age of Health and How We Can Reclaim It. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Dr. Mary Ruert. Oh, well, thanks for that introduction. It's great to be with both of you. Well, let's let's jump into the book because I, I and I've been I said this to Ron earlier when we were prepping for the show, and I've said this to I don't know at least a half a dozen people as I've been reading the book over the last week or so that your book is more horrific than a Stephen King novel because it's real, and and this and it, it so it's and it's very personal and it's well so well written. But let's start at the beginning. It all kind of starts with Children of Thalidomide, doesn't it? Yes, it does. You know, I was I was uh, barely a teenager when 
when thalidomide was released in Europe. And it was a safer sleeping drug than barbiturates. If you recall back then, a lot of people died of barbiturate overdose. But unfortunately, it was not safe for the unborn. And so what had happened is pregnant women found that it alleviated their morning sickness, and it was being taken for that. But if the woman took it in the first month or two of pregnancy, Oftentimes, the babies were born missing limbs or, or died. And so Europe is, Europe had this drug on the market. They experienced this horrific um, uh, side effect. And in the United States, there were only five or six such babies born because it was still in testing here. The FDA had not approved it because one of the examiners was concerned about another side effect that the drug had, which it created some nerve damage. So... It never got on the market here. But when Life magazine did a big spread on these babies and showed pictures, the American public got very upset. And so Congress decided to pass legislation, the 1962 Keep Off or Harris Amendments to the Food and Drug Act. And this legislation really had very little to do with safety. It had been in languishing in Congress for many years. And it really changed the whole dynamics of drug development in the U.S., because it, it gave the FDA unprecedented power, not just at one time, but in an open-ended way. So these regulations are still metastasizing throughout the system, and every year they get worse and worse. And because of what they did, uh, not only giving the FDA all this power, but changing the way that the FDA itself was treated, um, it, it, it's really created a lot of problems. So one of the problems that happened was instead of taking four years to get from the lab bench to the marketplace, it now takes closer to 14 years because of these amendments. And, of course, people die waiting. So when the AIDS epidemic hit, the AIDS patients went to the black market and had black market chemists making the same drugs that we were trying to make in the pharmaceutical industry and distributed throughout the AIDS community. By the time the FDA gave drug companies permission to test in people, every AIDS patient in the country who wanted these drugs had already had them and was resistant. So we had to wait for uh, other people to be diagnosed with AIDS before we could do the tests that the FDA wanted us to do. So I estimate in my book that about 15 million people, Americans, I should say, have died waiting. And I I qualify it because what happens in the U.S. ripples out throughout the world. Most new drugs are discovered in the U.S. So when you um, take a long time to get the drug to market, it affects the whole world. Uh, worse than that, we lost about 50 to 80 percent of our innovation. I actually got a call from the FDA one day, and they said, Dr. Ruart, we're very excited because you just filed a patent for prostaglandins and liver disease, and there's nothing for this type of liver disease. 100,000 people die every year. Well, I was young and naive and thought this would, you know, help the drug actually get to market. But the problem is when you have a really new drug, you don't know how much to give. You don't know how often you have to give it. You don't know how long you have to give it for, especially for a chronic disease like liver disease. And so if you guess wrong on any of these unknowns and go into human trials and you've guessed wrong, then you don't have the statistical significance that the FDA requires and you have to start all over again. Since these studies take years and years, 
the company quickly figured out that if we didn't guess right the first time, we would have to repeat these studies, and by the time the drug was on the market, it would go generic the first day. <laughs> so we didn't have any hope of recovering our development costs, and so we didn't do it. I estimate that about 26.7 million Americans have died, and this is a very conservative estimate, um, from our losses for innovation. If you total all this up, it means that each of us have either lost about 5.5 years of our lives or half the people who have died from disease have lost 11 years. Yeah, and, and that's that's the, the, the point that makes it so horrific is that this is not some fictitious description of what's going on. This is this is very real. You know, you in, in your description there, you you mention a, a uh, the cancer analogy, which ripples throughout your book. You kind of use that and we weave that thought uh, throughout the book. And I think it's a it's an apt one. Um, but we only have about three minutes left in this segment before we have to take a break. So I want to ask you this question, which I think is related to the the, the the amendments. Before the amendments, a drug had to have to show the claim that it was safe for intended use. And then after, it had to be safe and effective. And, you know, we, 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 we all, you know, it's funny how many people say, well, it's just semantics. But why is this difference so important and, and what, it, what has it done for us? Well, part of it is that the safety testing that the FDA wanted was much greater um, in time and expense than had been being done before. And the effectiveness testing is the most expensive part of the whole thing. And, of course, no drug is perfectly safe or effective for anyone. So <laughs> what criteria do you use? Where's the, where's the break point? If one out of ten are helped by the drug, is that effective? If only, it, it, or do you need like 10 out of 10? What's, what's, the, uh, what's the cutoff? And, and so the FDA has gotten very careful because if something goes wrong and every drug has side effects, or every approval has potential problems, and if they come to the attention of the American public, Congress beats up on the FDA unfairly because you just, we just don't have the knowledge to predict every time what drug is, is going to have problems when the, it's widespread distribution. Well, and as you said, you know, sometimes safe and effective for one group doesn't mean for a different group. And, and you know, if, if, if it's an advanced stage of cancer, you might actually be worth it for that one out of 10, right? So it's exactly. it's very, very, very difficult to judge. Yeah. So anyway, we're up against our first break. I want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website, of course, is the soul of enterprise. Dot com where we have the all show notes from all of our previous shows as well as previews of upcoming shows there. But right now, a word from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are Leading Results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? 
I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Dr. Mary Ruart, the author of Death by Regulation, just a fantastic book, Mary. It was just enrapturing to read. I couldn't put it down. I, I just really liked your logical way you kind of walk through it. The chapters are short, so you can kind of dip into it. Um, but you threw out a statistic that kind of shocked me. You write, prescription drugs properly prescribed killed 106,000 people in 1994 alone. That's kind of an amazing statistic. I, I guess drugs are controlled poison. Well, you know, I think it's not that drugs are less safe than they used to be. I suspect it's because of the way uh, companies choose their compounds to develop and how, how patients are treated by doctors. Now, let me explain that a little bit. You know, back when I was first starting in the industry, we would use, we would, we would develop drugs that didn't have patents because, you know, most drugs are either a natural substance or a natural substance with like extra chemical groups tacked on so that they last longer in the body. Right. And once these development costs went up, we had to have patents, which started, started the ball rolling that we couldn't develop any natural compounds anymore, right? So all the drugs we have today, um, are pretty much unnatural compounds. So when your body detoxifies it, it's not seeing something it's used to seeing. But maybe even more important than that, because of the great cost, about $2.5 billion, to get a new drug on the market, uh, the drug companies are only developing drugs that they are pretty sure are going to be need to take and be, be taken for a long time, maybe years or even decades. Now your body's pretty smart. It can, it can detoxify chemicals in short term use, but when you start taking them for decades, it gets depleted of special nutrients. It needs to detoxify them and that starts creating problems. And then on top of that, the way drugs are prescribed today, the physician prescribes something for you. If you have a side effect, they prescribe a drug for, to counter that side effect. And pretty soon we have people who are taking, especially seniors, like maybe a couple dozen drugs a day. So then they start interacting. And when they interact, the problem is, of course, that they can be much more toxic than they would be by themselves. So 
I'm not sure that drugs are inherently less safe than they used to be. I think it's the, but the amendments that we're talking about have driven up costs so much that it's really changed the way we develop drugs today and it's changed the way doctors prescribe them because some of these amendments have impacted on medical practice as well. So this is pretty scary. And of course, if you're not in the industry, it's very difficult to see the impact of these regulations and the average person, of course, is totally clueless about the shift that's been made in recent decades after the amendments from inexpensive prevention to expensive treatment. And frankly, I think that this shift from inexpensive prevention to expensive treatment has, has probably killed more people than everything I talked about in the first segment. I can't prove that, however, because the studies haven't been done. But, uh, you know, we don't focus on prevention as much anymore. In fact, if you're trying to prevent disease and you talk about it and you're selling a product that will help prevent disease, the FDA is likely to threaten you with prosecution. And that's tragic because we would be so much better off with prevention. Right. You, yeah, I like how you draw the line of demarcation at the 1962 amendments and you provide some statistics prior to those amendments and after those. And one of the things you estimate, and, and it's a con- conservative estimate, is you write that at least half of the Americans who have died since 1962 have lost more than a decade of their lives because of the 1962 amendments to the Food and Drug Act. Can, mm-hmm. can you kind of unpack for us? why researchers look at years off of life rather than number of deaths? Sure, sure. Well, you know, if, if, we, if we have a baby that dies, that baby has lost, what, maybe 70 years of its life. If we have somebody who is 65 and dies, maybe they've lost five years of our life. So researchers like to talk in terms of life years. They feel that gives you a better picture of you know, what's actually being lost. So when I cited the studies that I did, they were in life years. And the way I calculated the lives was to use the most common um, success, I guess you could say, that we've had, which is in cardiovascular disease and stroke. We've cut that back about 50% uh, since the time of the amendment. So that's been one of our big successes. And if you save... Uh, a person's life from cardiovascular disease, you gain about 11 years. So that's where I got that 11-year figure. Right, right. Now that makes complete sense. I mean, one of the things I love that you talked about as well was the the off-label use, like, like something as simple as aspirin, helping people avoid heart attack and stroke, and how the FDA doesn't allow pharmaceutical companies to commu- uh, communicate or market that to the public or to doctors. Is that right? Yes. Back in the 60s, you know, Bayer Aspirin already had figured out that there was a great probability from the existing data that you could prevent heart attacks with aspirin. So it wanted to do that. So it went to the FDA and said, okay, under the new amendments, what do we have to do? Well, when the FDA told them, they went, "Uh, no, this isn't going to work. You know, aspirin's generic. If we put all this money into this big plan that you have, FDA, we're not going to be able to recoup our investment and everybody else can use our data and, you know, can, can, you know, they won't have this cost that we have. So it didn't do it. So it wasn't until the um, 
the late 1980s when there was a study published that had been funded by, I think, by the NIH to, um, to use this aspirin on a, on a study with physicians, they found out, hey, we're going to have to stop this study because it's become very clear that aspirin is preventing heart attacks. It's unethical to keep having these doctors take placebo. So they published their study, and then, of course, uh, most physicians who were aware of this study started prescribing aspirin for their patients. But if you think about it, that's, that's over a 20-year lag uh, between the time that we had a pretty good idea this was true and the time that Bear Aspirin and the other aspirin companies um, could sell aspirin for the shoes. They couldn't tell doctors about it. The doctors had to know because it was against the law for them to talk to doctors about this or even show them the publication unless they went through all of these regulatory hoops and paid the, well, it wouldn't have been $2.5 billion because it was already on the market, but it still would have been a lot of money. Sure, sure. Well, you know, you, you, you mentioned the, the, the high price of drugs and another, you know, and, and a lot of people attribute it to greed, which is just a, a really terrible theory because it's like, Ed and I love to say, it's like blaming air crashes uh, on gravity, right? Greed and gravity are kind of a constant. <laughs> so you can't yeah. blame change on a constant. So there's got to be some other type of cause going on. And you, you, of course, say the real culprit is the FDA approval process, and it's probably increased the average price of drugs 40 times or more mm-hmm. because you cited that real drug prices fell 32% between 1949 and 1961. And this is, of course, mm-hmm. prior to the 62 amendments. Uh, and you worked for Upjohn for 19 years, and Big Pharma is maligned and it's impugned and a bunch of greedy people. They kill their customers. I, I just get so sick of hearing this. I can't even imagine what it was like to be an employee dedicated to help saving and preserving human life and then hearing that day after day in the media and the press, politicians, um, how did you deal with it? Well, actually, that's a fairly recent phenomenon. Up to the, t- the mid-90s, this is not what we heard. Uh, but after the 90s, a lot of people started becoming upset with the drug companies, partly because they don't understand what goes on behind the scenes with these regulations. And it's actually very hard to find out. So... Uh, and the reason it's hard to find out is nobody in the drug industry is going to say anything because if they do, the FDA can punish them by dragging their feet on all their approvals, which, of course, could destroy a company, and it has destroyed many a company. So no one's going to speak out. And if I were still employed by the industry, I wouldn't be able to speak out either. So, so it's, And it's not really greed what it is. If you look, of course, there's a graph in my book where I show that the increase in the price of R&D is directly correlated to the prices we pay at the pharmacy, which, of course, makes total sense from an economic standpoint, because if you're paying more money to get your approval, you've got to increase your prices or you go out of business. And that's what's eventually going to happen, because the prices increase every year, even though we've kind of leveled off on the number of years it takes. uh, The increase in the costs that the FDA, for the studies the FDA is demanding, is going up exponentially not even linearly, which means it's going up very, very fast. 
And the sad thing about that is if it keeps up, pretty soon we will have no new drugs because none will be affordable. Right now, about three out of 10 or two out of 10 drugs actually they cover their costs. The entire industry is based on these blockbuster drugs, and there just aren't that many of them. So it's really going to be difficult. But getting back to this greed thing, um, in, in the sense of all the pharmaceutical companies, it obviously isn't correct. But what the amendments have done, ironically, is to encourage greed. So what happens with all these spikes in generic drug prices, uh, you know, that you hear on the news, what, right. what is happening now is there's small companies that go out and see which generic drugs that there's only now one manufacturer for. And in most cases, there's only one manufacturer because the FDA isn't allowing other companies to make, you know, a competing drug or they're delaying their approvals. And so when these little companies get a hold of a drug for which there's only one manufacturer, they get an exclusive licensing agreement with the manufacturer and then raise the price through the roof because there's no competition. And even if somebody started right away to get a competing uh, product, it would take years. So they're, they're going to be sailing free for at least three years before they have to lower their prices. Right. And like you say, the first, the first uh, patent holder usually commands the, the, you know, what 90% market share or something. So that mm-hmm. approval is really important, especially the first one. Yes. Yes. And of course, even with generics, what happens to these older generics, people stop making them because they've been replaced by other drugs or, you know, there just isn't um, as much demand. But usually the people who have the drug first, they don't bother yanking the prices way up because their focus is on their new drugs. So when, when, the, when they're down to the last manufacturer, which oftentimes is the original one, that's when these little companies step in and try to get this exclusive license. Right. Mary, we only have a minute left, but just one more stat from your book that I think so many people just ignore is you point out that drugs lower other health care costs. Roughly $3.65 is saved in medical expenses for every dollar invested in drugs, and that's just something most people don't seem to be aware of. Well, I know, even at these ridiculously high prices, it, it, it saves money. For example, when Tagamet, which is the first anti-ulcer drug, came on the market, you know, they were really expensive for a drug. It was $1,000 a year, and you usually had to take them probably for two years, but you didn't have to have a $25,000 surgery. You didn't have to right. miss all that work. So it really makes a difference to have drug treatment instead of surgery or hospitalization or something else. Sure, sure. And as a patient, I'll do that. I'll make that trade off any day. Well, Mary, this is just absolutely fascinating. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or myself, you can send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. We will post full show notes on our interview with Mary and uh, links to her books, especially the latest one we've been discussing, Death by Regulation at thesoulofenterprise.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Abacus Next. future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. 
Results CRM, the award-winning Abacus Next product, is a customer relationship management solution that will automate your business processes, streamline workflows, and deliver consistent results. Cloud-enabled to provide access to your users anytime from anywhere. Grow your business in 2018 with the number one QuickBooks CRM. To learn more about Results CRM, visit ResultsCRM.com. Clouds come in all shapes and sizes, and the Abacus Private Cloud is the perfect fit. Abacus Cloud enables all the desktop apps you know and love while providing unparalleled security to your business. Cloud functionality gives you the flexibility to work where you want, when you want, and from any device you want. Don't waste countless hours managing IT. Take back your time. Learn more at abacusnext.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we're back on the Soul of Enterprise with author of Death by Regulation, How We Were Robbed of a Golden Age of Health and How We Can Reclaim It, Dr. Mary Ruert with it. By the way, the foreword is by uh, Dr. Ron Paul, congressman. So, uh, Mary, and one of the – again, this is it, – it, it's a funny, not funny uh, story, and you, you mentioned this. I did laugh when I read it, but but it's actually kind of serious. You said the you know makers of water, so to speak, water could not be advertised that it alleviates dehydration without going through years of expensive studies to demonstrate what is obvious and already well established. And I, I think that's very true. But but then you go on to tell this crazy story, which I would love for you to tell on the air here is how are Cheerios and cherries drugs? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, um, food manufacturers and um, food growers decided that they would tell the American public that certain substances in their product uh, actually had been scientifically shown to do good health things, like maybe lower cholesterol or um, alleviate some other condition. And so they put that on their website. And the FDA said, well, if you make any health claims, and that includes just repeating what other people have said in the scientific literature and referencing that, then you have turned your product into a drug. And so they sent out a bunch of uh, letters to uh, both uh, cherry and walnut manufacturers one year and, you know, basically told them that their food was a drug and they needed to stop telling people about these health benefits if they didn't want that to happen. Diamond Foods, which puts out, of course, a lot of walnuts, actually got sued for false advertising and convicted, or or they settled, I guess. Um, but, I mean, it cost them millions because of what the FDA did. So, of course, these companies are not going to talk about all the scientific studies that show the benefits 
of eating walnuts or um, eating some of the components of walnuts or cherries. So this is very sad because, again, this is part of why we don't have a good level of prevention in the country is because when foods are nutritional, the manufacturers are not allowed to really talk about it. Other people can talk about it, but if the manufacturer talks about it, it makes foods a drug. And unfortunately, the courts have agreed with the FDA. Even to the point where I, I forget what part this was, but where the, the FDA and the CDC get into these contests back and forth, like the Centers for oh, Disease yeah. Control says, this is okay. <laughs> Oh, yeah, this was very tragic. I call it the American thalidomide incident. You know, we talked about the beginning of the show, how nothing much happened with thalidomide in this country because it wasn't approved. But these very amendments that were passed because people were concerned about something like thalidomide coming to the country actually created the American thalidomide. And here's how it happened. Back in the early 80s, we knew that taking the B vitamin, folic acid, in women who were pregnant in the first month or two of pregnancy would prevent almost entirely uh, these devastating neural tube birth defects and, you know, like spina bifida. And so, you know, children that have these often, often end up institutionalized or aborted because we can test for it in, in utero. So what happened is the folic acid manufacturers obviously wanted to tell the American women, hey, if you can have children, you ought to be taking this folic acid at this dose because it will prevent birth defects in your children. And the FDA told them if they did that, that they would shut them down. They'd prosecute them. And so it wasn't until the early 90s that the Center for Disease Control, another government agency, started making that recommendation. And the FDA told the folic acid manufacturers that if they even talked about the Center for Disease Control's recommendation, that they would prosecute them. So instead of, you know, having 12 years or so where the American public could have heard about this and prevented birth defects, we probably had at least, at least 10,000 babies born needlessly with these birth defects, and many more were aborted. And then in the mid-90s, the FDA started requiring grain manufacturers, um, or I should say products that had grain, such as um, wheat, um, so breads and cereals, things like this, that they had to be fortified with folic acid. And this was kind of ridiculous because, of course, you never knew how much you were getting. Young women didn't know if they were getting enough folic acid. And so this simply interfered with their doctors who might say, well, I want you to take folic acid, but if you're eating all this other stuff, you might, you know, maybe, maybe that would be too much. So it got very confusing. And this folic acid supplementation really didn't change the statistics very much, if at all. So it was very... Uh, a very discouraging thing. Now, in other countries, they let the manufacturers educate the public. And when they did that, in just a few years, the supplementation uh, for young women of childbearing potential basically went from something like 5% to 70%. I mean, it was, you know, really quick. And, of course, they didn't have the neural tube defects that we have here. Yeah, it's just just incredible. The, the other thing I want to ask you about is, and I, and I don't know where where they're coming down on this, but there are so many therapies now that where you're using perhaps some of your own cells and and uh, stem cells to to fight cancer mm -hmm. in your own body, yes. and. Mm -hmm. 
is is, is this going to be regulated as a drug or is this just, is I would I mean I would look at it just yeah. as a medical procedure, right? So that it that would not cover be covered on the FDA. I mean, I I don't know. You, you would hope. Well, initially yeah. it started out that way, but the FDA, I told you remember the 62 amendments metastasized and this is one area where they've really metastasized to our detriment. So the leading position in stem cells, I, I think, is in Colorado. And the, he, he actually developed a procedure because he was working with athletes and stuff. He was developed a procedure where he could take the cells out of, out of your body and grow them up in a test tube and then put them back in about a week later. And when he did this, he got much better results. But the FDA said, hey, as long as you put them back the same day, it's medical practice. But if you grow them in the test tube first and then put them back, nope, that's a drug. <laughs> so you have to go through all of this, you know, regulatory red tape. Well, of course, this physician took them to court and lost. The uh, courts decided the FDA was right. Cultured stem cells are a drug. And so he had to move his cultured stem cells offshore. And, you know, most of this kind of research, which is really important, is moving offshore because it's very cumbersome to try to do stem cell research and try to match the kind of protocols that you have with pharmaceutical drugs. It just isn't the same thing. So it, it really slowed down the process. In fact, there was a young boy who, who uh, was working with a nail gun and somehow stuck the nail in his heart. He was rushed to the hospital, and the hospital happened to have a, a good stem cell person who said, hey, you know, uh, you're having heart attacks, you're going to die unless we give you these stem cells, but, you know, it's a new treatment, so we don't know what's going to happen. Well, he and his parents decided to go ahead with the stem cells, and he recovered. Three months later, he was on the basketball court. This is pretty miraculous, right? And, and mm -hmm. so, of course, this doctor was so excited. He said, this is great. You know, we could, get, we could get patients who, you know, have a high probability of having a heart attack in the next year because they've had several already and treat them with these stem cells. And he was ready to do this study. And the FDA said, no, you can't do that. Stem cells are a drug. <laughs> so, you know, this thing got... Your really own cells. Delayed. Yeah, their own your cells, own right. cells are your own your cells own are drug. Cells are drug, uh, right? All right, and Cheerios and and walnuts. Okay, got it, got it. That's good. Um, <laughs> Ron and I pri primarily deal with a lot of small and medium sized businesses in our career, especially accountants, for good or for bad. And one of the things that we have noticed is that leaders in these businesses tend to uh, they treat data. Um, as if it were th like a sub they have a substance abuse problem, right? It's it's exactly like drugs. They get if they the, and, and illicit drugs. They they addictive drugs. They get a little data and then they want more and they want more and they want more. And one of the lines in your book, you say the complexity of the trials increases every year as the FDA demands more and more data from each study. So here's mm -hmm. the kind of ironic question: Does the FDA have a data substance abuse problem? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good way of putting it. Of course, I have to say, to be fair to the FDA, um, it also has a different problem, and that is Congress. The FDA knows it's going to get unfairly blamed if any drug that they approve has a side effect, even though we should expect that some drugs will have horrific side effects just because we don't know enough. And, and so the FDA gets punished by Congress if that happens. So they're very 
they're very, uh, you know, concerned if they have to approve a drug quickly. For example, human insulin. You know, before human cloned insulin, diabetics had to take insulin that was isolated from pigs. And the problem with that is after they took it for a few years, they usually had an allergic reaction. You know, you can only put so much of another species in your body before your body rejects that. And especially for type 1 diabetics, this was deadly because they either had to have an allergic reaction, which it could kill them, or they had to go without their insulin, which could kill them. So when human cloned insulin came around, the first uh, person who examined it said, okay, I've looked at the data. It's only taken me four months. This is a great thing. We should approve it. And his supervisor said, no, I don't think so. If we approve this drug after four months of looking at the data and something goes wrong, it'll be our heads. We're not doing it. Well, thankfully for diabetics, when the supervisor went on vacation, this examiner went above his head to his boss and uh, made the same pitch. And luckily, uh, that supervisor, the, the supervisor's boss, agreed that, yes, we should approve this human insulin and get it to diabetics as soon as possible. But you can see why the FDA keeps adding more and more studies because they're thinking, okay, if Congress calls us on the carpet, we can at least show due diligence. You know, it's kind of a CYA thing. Yeah, unbelievable. Well, we're, we're up against our last break. I have to say, Mary, unfortunately, I think reading your book has uh, is going to cause me to increase my dosage of amlodipine, which is for high blood pressure. So <laughs> I'm going to have to go to my physician. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, up the dosage. So I'll, we'll, we'll, I'll, be, I'll be part of a study before you know it. Uh, uh, we're up against our break. want to remind you, you can contact Ron or me, asktsoe at verisage.com. Love to have your opinion on this show and others. Uh, uh, the website is the soul of enterprise, but now a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. There is no blueprint for running the perfect firm. No way to know the challenges you'll face. But your journey does not have to be an odyssey. Experience what it is like for every part of your firm to be connected. Experience a practice management tool where everything is just a click away. Experience Office Tools. To learn more, visit officetools.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Dr. Mary Ruert, the author of Death by Regulation and Mary, I, I had a college economics professor I was telling Ed who made us read Sam Peltzman on uh, some of his research on the FDA yeah. and the drug process. And I noticed that you cited him a couple times and also reading Melton Friedman's work. Um, and you were talking with Ed about the FDA's got a problem with Congress as well. And I was just thinking about the type of errors an FDA commissioner, the FDA can make it, you know, they can obviously approve a drug that goes out and harms people like Biox, something like that, but they can also not approve a drug that could save many, many lives and yet dead men tell no tales, right? I mean, nobody would know. And mm -hmm. so, so that's right. Type, type one, type two errors. I just, I want to get to your three reform proposals in the book, but putting that aside for just a second, I just wanted to get your opinion. We interviewed economist Stephen Landsberg, and one of his ideas that always struck me as very innovative to, to overcome the, in, the incentive problem with these type one, type two errors, he, he proposed that the FDA commissioner be paid in big pharma stock. Or stock options, <laughs> and uh, well, that always struck me as very innovative. What's your take on that? <laughs> well, the problem, of course, is that the the companies they got stock from would be the ones that were favored, and in fact, there have been there have been reasons to think that some of the approvals may have been influenced uh, in an undue fashion. <laughs> Right, right. So, uh, I'm not sure that's the best way to handle it. I think the best way to handle it is, of course, attack the problem at its root. And the root is the 1962 amendments. So my belief is we should get rid of the amendments, but we need to do more than that because some of these amendments have actually turned into, uh, you know, um, court cases that have given legal opinions. So just getting rid of the amendments would would actually kind of leave some of them intact if those court cases were used as a fulcrum. And so that, you know, the only reason, the only way you can really get rid of the influence of the court cases, in my opinion, is to uh, allow the FDA to continue as a certifying agency, but drugs could be marketed without their approval. And right. I know that sounds a little radical, but actually... The way it's being prepared for that, and I want to talk about this just a little because I want to give your listeners hope. And, you know, Right to Try, of course, is uh, been passing state by state, and Right to Try allows terminally ill patients to negotiate directly with the pharmaceutical companies to get these unapproved drugs. Yes. And, and, and now it's being considered by Congress. Now, Right to Try is very limited. Uh, if If a company goes down the right to try track, it's, it's possible since it has to stay in the FDA's good graces that the FDA would punish the company for putting its drug in that tract. But I know coming along is another, another um, initiative, and, you know, right to try is actually preparing the way for that initiative. It's called Free to Choose Medicine by the Heartland Institute. 
And I spoke with Heartland because, of course, I'm one of their advisors. And I said, well, you know, the free-to-choose medicine still has the same Achilles heel. And they said, well, we don't want that. So they changed it. And that's really good because now, even though the FDA has jurisdiction for some of the safety studies, once a drug goes into the free-to-choose medicine track, it stays there. It doesn't need FDA approval. And, and that will really change the whole dynamics. Because free-to-choose medicine is, of course, a less, uh, it's a more, con- or more conservative, maybe I should say, a less radical recommendation than mine, I'm hoping my book will prepare the way for free-to-choose medicine, because I think it's a reform that could actually lead to, you know, better drugs uh, faster, which is, you know, what the free-to-choose medicine track promises. Right. Well, in your recommended remedies, you, you like you say, you want to repeal the 62 amendments, but then you want to revoke FDA's ability to approve new drugs and basically turn it into a certification agency, mm-hmm. which I love. Does that mean that a consumer or patient would be able to look at, you know, different types of drugs and some would have the FDA certification on them and others wouldn't maybe one of these free to choose drugs, but the choice would ultimately be up to the patient and or their doctor. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And the good news is that, you know, we know that certification will work in drugs. And the reason we know this is because the Abigail Alliance, which is a consumer group, has evaluated data that's been coming out of cancer studies, and it's recommended 40 drugs, 40 different drugs, be approved years before the FDA actually approved them. So if a consumer's group can tell that a cancer drug is going to work years before the FDA approves it, <laughs> clearly you would think that certifiers who had scientific staff would be able to do at least that well. <laughs> sure, and, sure. Uh, kind of like... And the other... Hmm? Go ahead. I was just going to say kind of like the underwriter's laboratory, right? They certify electrical appliances or whatever. That's right. Our electrical appliances are not regulated. They're certified by UL. And the nice thing about UL is if it has to say to a manufacturer, hey, this thing isn't safe, they also try to say, hey, and this is how you can make it safe. And so they work with the company. And and consequently, we get very good electrical equipment. We rarely have a problem with our electrical equipment. But the, the, the wonderful thing about it is if we want to buy something that isn't certified by UL, we can do that. And, you know, when, when patients decide that they just can't wait any longer and they, they decide to use a drug that isn't tested yet, they're actually doing all of us a big service because we learn from that. Sure. And so there's no reason we should forbid them that choice. When I see the criticisms of right to try, they're going, oh, well, these terminal patients might die earlier, or they (laughs) might have more pain. Yeah, they might, but they also might live, you know? (laughs) So whose choice should it be? (laughs) You talk about how some people make, you know, drugs in their kitchen, or they have to go onto the black market, or maybe Mm -hmm. to foreign countries. I mean, it's happening already in some respects. And I also loved how you point out that surgeons don't need FDA approval for like knee and hip replacements. You know, those innovations came about. And of course, you know, obviously there's downsides that maybe surgeons did overuse cardiac bypass, you know, surgery, for instance, but, Mm -hmm. uh, but it leads to more innovation and that ultimately saves more lives. And the third leg of your stool, I just want to be complete with your recommended remedies on top of repealing the 62 amendments and re, uh, turning FDA into a certification. 
Uh, you also want the Health Freedom Act to be passed. Can you kind of unpack that? What is that? Yes. Well, of course, one of the big things that the FDA has been doing is suppressing information, uh, sometimes life-saving information, about natural substances, like the whole folic acid story that we talked about earlier. So the Health Freedom Act basically allows manufacturers to make claims for their vitamins, minerals, whatever, you know, if they have some reasonable basis for it. And the FDA can't just automatically shut them down. And I believe that this would, this would happen if we got rid of the approval uh, authority of the FDA because the way, the way the FDA is set up, it, if it doesn't have that approval stick, it really has no clout to prosecute. You know, well, right now it uses the 62 amendments as its clout. The 62 amendments says that the drugs have to show effectiveness in a, some type of scientific controlled manner. It didn't specify how it had to be done, but the way the FDA's put their process together, it's very onerous. So it would be, it would be, without the amendments, it would be very difficult. Before the amendments, nutrients could make health claims. Uh, foods could make health claims. So that's, right. you know, I think it would be helpful and supported by the Health Freedom Act. But basically getting rid of the amendments and turning the FDA into a certifying agency probably would do it. I think passing the Health Freedom Act would ensure it. Right. Well, Mary, you quoted a Cato analyst who said the FDA regulation certainly cannot be proved safe and effective, thereby flunking its own approval criterion. And I, I don't know how anybody can read your book and not come to the same conclusion. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, um, of course, they can go to my website, ruart.com, R-U-W-A-R-T.com. Uh, they can buy the book there or on Amazon. Uh, there's also going to be, a, I mean, there already is, I'm sorry, a Kindle version on Amazon as well. And, of course, if anyone has questions or concerns, they should just go ahead and email me through my website at ruart.com because those get, emails get special flags, and I'm, I'm less likely to have them end up in my spam folder or miss them. <laughs> so I, wanna, I don't want to miss anything from your listeners, so I encourage them to email me through my website. Excellent. Well, Mary, thank you so much for appearing on The Soul of Enterprise. It was an honor to talk to you. And Ed, well, what do we have? What do we what do we have on store for next week? Next week, Ron, is Free Rider Friday. Oh, awesome. I'll see you in 167 hours. 